Thank you. I have been uh, sharing here at the church since Sunday, and then and then during the day, um, been uh, spending a lot of time with with um, with Gabriel and um, and the other leaders of the church. And I, I've had a, a tremendous time, thoroughly enjoyed this time. Uh, and so I, I appreciate it very much. While while I am here this week. Uh, sharing with with the church and and you, um, people that I have trained and mentored in this message that I'm going to be sharing with you tonight, are are right now carrying um, my books and CDs and DVDs into Vietnam and China and uh, Burma or Myanmar, and these are all places that are closed. To the gospel, and the only way to get these materials in is for people to put their lives on the line and hand carry these materials into these countries. So while we're sitting here tonight, it's already tomorrow in uh, Southeast Asia, and there are men and women that we have sown our, our love and our teaching and our money into who, while we're sitting here talking about the gospel of grace, they are putting their lives on the line to take this material and ultimately the good news of Jesus to people on the other side of the world. Um, they're a lot warmer than we are, by the way. It's about 90 degrees in Indonesia right now. But I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to share with you. So here's what I'd like for you to do. I, I'd like for you to get out your Bibles if you have one. If you don't, kind of look over to... To somebody who does, and would like for you to turn to Second Corinthians chapter five, and um, I'm all this week. I've been teaching from from my latest book, God's Brilliant Plan, and in a in in a sentence, God's brilliant plan is that He started before creation to put into implementation a plan where he could live inside of human beings. In reality, the thing that sets Christianity apart from every other major religion in the world, whether it's Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism or Judaism, the reality that sets us apart is not just the name Jesus, because every one of those religions has a savior, a messiah, a, a, a lead prophet, something or someone. Uh, Muslims believe that Jesus was a prophet from God. They don't believe he was God, but they believe that he was a prophet from God. What sets Christianity apart from every other world religion is that through Christianity, God's plan is not just to forgive people, but it is to, in fact, live inside of people. The good news that Paul, Peter, James, John, these men went throughout the known world in the first century to declare was not just forgiveness. God has always, from the Garden of Eden on down, given ways for anyone who wanted to be forgiven to be forgiven. When Adam and Eve sinned, God himself sacrificed some animals and made clothing from the skins of those. God did that himself. God didn't tell Adam to do it. God did that himself to cover their shame and their embarrassment and offer them forgiveness. Throughout the whole Old Testament, there is a very complicated and very elaborate uh, system of sacrifices so that anybody who wants to be forgiven can be forgiven. But that in and of itself is not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that God wants to extend us forgiveness so that he can come literally by His Spirit and live inside of our physical bodies. Paul said that the great mystery of the ages 
is Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, the question is not really, do I believe in Jesus? The real question is, am I going to live believing that Jesus is living in me? That is the good news. Now, in order to believe that, in order to enjoy the benefit of it, we must understand what God did through the offering of Jesus. We must understand what God did with His justified anger. God is holy. God is perfect. He is righteous in every way. And I am not. And you are not. Nor is any other human who's ever lived. So God, from a very legal standpoint, had to do something to remove the wrath and the justified anger of a perfect holy God toward those of us, all of us, who have willfully chosen to live our lives apart from Him. In the same way that if you break the law and stand before a judge, there is a legal issue that must be dealt with. And until that legal issue is dealt with, there will always be something between you and that judge, or you and the rest of the law-abiding society. So the question is, what did God do so that He could love you fully and freely and you could receive and enjoy that love? Now Paul talks about that in several places, but concisely he talks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So let's read a few verses and then I want to pose a question to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things, these new things, are from God. And then Paul's going to use a word that is a is a theologically technical word, but it's a really important word. And this is what he says. He says, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's the second time in, in one sentence that Paul uses the word reconcile or reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling, that's the third time the word's used, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled, that's the fifth time the word is used, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Now, Paul uses this word reconcile, reconciliation, reconciling five times in this short passage. Apparently, this word reconcile or reconciliation is extremely important to the Apostle Paul. If we believe the Holy Spirit inspired him to write it, and I most certainly do, then obviously this word reconciliation is important to the Holy Spirit. It's important to God. So the question is, what does this theologically technical word mean? What is reconciliation? And the good news is, it's not a complicated word at all. In fact, you understand this word already. If you've gotten in a fight with one of your good friends and somebody comes along and says, you know, you two are friends and you need to forgive each other and you need to lay aside your anger at each other. 
if you do that, if you both do that, you've just reconciled. Because the word reconciliation means to make peace with. That's what reconciliation means. It means to remove the anger so you and I can truly be at peace with each other. So the Apostle Paul says, here's the good news. The righteous, holy God, who is perfect in every way, and you, who from birth on have chosen in a variety of different ways to live independent and apart from Him, and frequently without even knowing it, violating His righteous law, God has chosen to do something with His justified anger toward our sin. God has chosen to do something with it. Now God has to do something with this righteous anger, this righteous indignation, this righteous wrath at my sin. God has to do something with it or he and I will never be reconciled. Because the very act of reconciliation is that something has to remove the anger between us so that we can be at peace with each other. So then the question is, well, what did God do? And Paul gives us a clear definition at the end when he says that he who knew no sin, Jesus, who was sinless in every way, God made him to be sin for us. Now you know this, you've been taught this before, that what happened on the cross was because God's great love for us wanted to be expressed to us. God wants us to know His love. God wants us to fully and completely experience His love for us. But in order for that to happen, something has to happen to sin. So what God did was He took the sins of the whole world and He placed them upon Jesus when Jesus was put on the cross. Jesus was made to be sin for us. Now this is, this is Christianity 101. This is the basic belief of all Christians, all born-again believers everywhere. This is the crux of the matter. This is the most simple elementary issue that, that, that causes one to either be born again or not be born again. I must believe that my sin, and according to this verse, these two or three verses that we just read, not only my sins, but the sins of the whole, the whole world were placed upon Jesus. That God put upon Jesus on the cross the sins of the whole world so that when Jesus died, the penalty for the sins of the whole world was paid. What a tragedy that people for whom in fact their sins have already been paid for don't know it. And because they don't know it they cannot exercise faith. Or they know it or they've been told it but they choose not to believe. How sad. But I tell you something that's, that's also very sad. And that is that when God placed Jesus on the cross and put my sin and your sin and the sins of the whole world on the cross, he did something else. And herein lies the dilemma. It is one thing to believe that Jesus died for forgiveness for your sins. It's another thing to believe that in your everyday struggle right now to progressively let him work in you and change you while you struggle, while according to James 3, 2, we all stumble in many ways. It's another thing to believe somehow that God's not mad at you for the screw-ups you're doing right now. So something has to happen other than the legal penalty being paid. Uh, imagine that, that in my neighborhood, um, um, uh, imagine that I, 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 I break the law. And, uh, and I'm taken into court. And, and when I'm brought before the judge, it suddenly dawns on me that I recognize this guy. He lives in my neighborhood. 
the judge that I'm now having to stand before actually lives in my neighborhood. And so I'm brought up by the police officer before the judge and my charge is read and I'm found to be guilty. And, and, and imagine there's a $10,000 fine for the offense that I've committed and I don't have $10,000 and I can't pay it. But somebody else steps up and says, well, I love this guy and uh, so I'm going to pay the penalty I'm going to pay the debt. Now that's good because that legally sets me free. Now I leave the court and I am relieved because somebody's paid my debt. And I go home and the next day I go out of my house to mow my lawn and as I look down the cul-de-sac where I live, I see the judge coming out of his house. And I look at him and he looks at me and our eyes meet and I know that he knows I am as guilty as sin. I know that he knows I am a lawbreaker. And even though the legal penalty has been paid, I suspect he's still mad at me. You there? Now herein lies the dilemma. You and I can sit here tonight and have the realization that Jesus died and paid the penalty for our sin. But how do you think God feels tomorrow when you screw up? Now don't answer that. Because our feelings are going to have to line up with the truth. But the question is, how do you think God feels? When you fall short, how do you think God feels? When you, I mean, let's be honest. When you were put under pressure in a certain situation and you choose to behave ungodly. Now, there's, I know there's probably only two or three of you that would ever do that. I realize that. I am one of those two or three, given the right circumstances. Then the question is, well, how does God feel? I've, 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 just, I've just messed up. How does God feel? And this is a very critical question because how I come to believe God feels about my failure will determine whether in my failure I draw near to Him for His help or I draw back from Him in fear and shame. Now, this is what we have to understand. Paul labors this issue of reconciliation. We've been reconciled to God through the offering of Jesus Christ. We have been reconciled to God. To be reconciled literally means to tear down the wall of anger and make peace. To be reconciled with somebody means that the anger has been done away with and we are both at peace with each other. Paul says repeatedly, we have been reconciled to God. And then he tells us how that happened. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us so that we would be reconciled to God. So here is the question about the crucifixion of Jesus. What was put upon Jesus in regards to us? What was put on Jesus when he hung on the cross? Now, this is not a trick question. We've already answered it in our talk so far. What was put on Jesus on the cross in regards to me? What was put on him? Sin. But you see, the beauty of the gospel is there was a second thing put on Jesus. Not just my sin, but how God felt about my sin. Because if Jesus' death just paid the legal price for my sin, but God being a holy, righteous judge is still ticked off at me, there's no peace between us. And even though I will know on one level that I am free from the penalty of the sin, I will constantly be tormented about how does God feel when I screw up the next time. Now here's a question. How many sins did Jesus die for? All of them? Are you sure? He died for all of them? 
So he died for all the sins you committed before you repented and became a Christian. Is that right? What about the sins that you've committed since you've been a Christian? Did he die for those two? What about the ones you haven't committed yet, but you're going to? He died for those two. Now, we've got to deal with this, folks. We have to deal with this. Because if we don't, I'll tell you exactly what's going to happen, because it's happened to me countless times throughout the past 40-some years that I've been following the Lord. And that is, when I fall short, the lie of the enemy is going to be, God doesn't want you near him in that condition. So we have to deal with this question. If you've received Christ as the sacrifice for your sin, can God be mad at you ever again? The biblical answer is no. God, by His choice, not by any technicality you caught Him on, not by any legal loophole, but completely because of God's great love for us, two things happened at the cross. God put your sin, all of them, and God put the anger He felt so that when Jesus died, not only did your sin die, but God's anger died with Him. Which means... He can't be mad at me ever again. Which means when I screw up, where am I going to run? I'm going to run to Him. I'm going to run to Him and not from Him. See, if you got sick and went to the doctor, and you say, you know, Doc, I got this infection, strep throat. And the doctor said, what kind of an idiot are you hanging around with people that have strep throat? Were you stupid or something? If you come in here again like that, I'm going to smack you upside the head. Here's some medicine. How many are going to choose another doctor the next time you get sick? See, that's not what happens. What happens is when you go to the doctor because you're sick, the doctor's very neutral. All he wants to do is help you get better. There's no personal accusation here. Well, the reality in our Christian walk with God is that we are going to be constantly in this process of having a desire to please Him and then in some areas falling short, confessing our falling short, and then moving on a little further, and then falling short, but confessing that, and then letting Him work in us and moving on. But if the enemy can keep lying to us so that we believe that when we come short of the, the, of the character and image of Jesus, that God is still mad at us then when we fall short we will not run to him we will not draw near to him what we'll do is we'll pull back and we'll try real hard to fix it somehow ourselves so that we can go to God I mentioned this the other night some of you were able to be with us during the, the, the earlier meetings and some of you weren't but I mentioned this the other night because at least in my simple mind, this helps me understand. Imagine that I call the doctor and I get the appointment nurse. And I say, I would like to make an appointment to see the doctor. And the nurse says, that's great, give me your name and phone number and all that. And, and what's wrong with you? And I say to her, well, nothing now. And she says, well, what do you mean nothing now? And I say, oh, two weeks ago, man, I was sick. I was sick as a dog. It was it was nasty. I was sick. But I'm good now. And she says, well, you dummy, why didn't you call two weeks ago and come and see the doctor then? And I say, oh, I'd be way too embarrassed for the doctor to see me sick. That's exactly what you and I do to the Lord. I'd really like to worship tonight. The man I screwed up so bad earlier today. Are you there? Am I the only one that battles this? I mean, I really like to be used of the Lord, but there's just some things in my life that aren't right yet. Well, welcome to the club. It's called humanity. I mean, welcome to the, you know, the household of the redeemed. I mean, that's what, this is, that's what this is all about. Jesus himself said, I am the great physician. Jesus told the Pharisees who thought they had it all worked out, you guys think you're well. You don't need the physician. It's just the sick who need the physician. 
How many are in the group of the sick? Go ahead, join up right now. That's me. I need the physician. And I need to keep going to him on a regular basis. But if the lie of the enemy is, well, you know, if you mess up, God's really ticked off at you, then you're not going to move toward him. You're going to move away. God understands human nature. He understands the lies of the accuser uh, of the believer. He understands what we go through. Hebrews chapter 4 says, we are blessed because we have a high priest who understands our weaknesses. Man, that's a great message. That's a great truth. I have a high priest who understands that there are weaknesses in my life. That's awesome. I have a high priest who's really ticked off because I'm not yet perfect. No, that's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is I have a high priest who understands. The next verse says, therefore, let us come boldly before his throne of grace, where we may find mercy and receive the power of his grace in our time of need. Now, in order to do that, I have to be absolutely convinced. Now, I'm going to give you some verses. If you're taking notes, write them down. In your own personal study, go back and read these. I don't want to take time to go through them all, but I want you to have them so you can look them up yourself. Colossians 1. Colossians chapter 1, 17 through 23. And this is what Paul says, and he repeats this stuff over and over and over again. We have been saved through the wrath of God... Because the wrath of God was nailed to the cross. Colossians 1, 17 to 23. Again in Colossians 2, 13 and 14. Paul says that the enmity, the wall of anger between us and God has been removed having nailed it to the cross. So you see we come back to this reality. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. We come back to this reality. What was put on the cross? Now, before you answer it, remember two things. Not just one, but two things. The first thing that was put on the cross was the sin of the whole world. But the second thing that was put on the cross was God's anger, the way he felt about that sin. That was also nailed to the cross. So when Jesus dies, God's anger dies. Which, by the way, that's the reason that the early apostolic writers about 20 times in the New Testament used the phrase, the gospel of peace. Because through the offering of Jesus, God made peace with us. We've been reconciled to God. Look, let, me, let, let me read this, by the way, just to remind you of what that means because Paul explains it back where we started, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Listen to these words. Verse 18. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. By the way, the ministry of reconciliation sounds real complicated. Here's what the ministry of reconciliation is. Because God has made peace with me through the cross of Jesus Christ, my job now is to tell other people he's made peace with them too. They just need to come to believe that. That's the ministry of reconciliation. Here's the ministry of reconciliation. I got really good news for you. God put all of his anger toward you on the cross, so he can't be mad at you anymore. If you'll believe that, you can enjoy that kind of life. Where you and I have been made right with God. We have been given right standing with God. Now listen to the way Paul describes it. Verse 19. Namely, which means, now I'm going to explain what this reconciliation thing means. Namely, that God was in Christ. This is 2 Corinthians 5, where we started a little while ago. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Now listen to his description. Not counting their trespasses against them. That's us. God does not count your trespasses. You may count them, but he doesn't. Because he has taken care of all of that. Why? So that you and I would be right with him. In being right with him, he could fully reveal to us his love. We could be full and complete and eternal recipients of his love. Now, let, let, me, let me give you a few other uh, uh, references. You can look them up later. Uh, Ephesians 2, 14 through 18. 
for those of you that are taking notes, Ephesians 2, 14 through 18, same thing. Paul says God was in Christ and he, 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 he put the, his wrath, his anger, uh, and nailed it to the cross. Romans 5, 8, 9, and 10. Romans 5, 8 through 10. This is where Paul says we are saved from the wrath of God because it has been nailed to the cross. Now, how confident can we be in this reality? To answer that question, the best place I think to go is actually to the Old Testament, which surprises some people because people do mistakenly get the idea that God acted one way in the Old Testament. You know, you know I mean, the God of the Old Testament was a mean dude. You know, I mean, I mean, you know, fire came out and licked people right off the, you know, I mean, you know, Plagues fell on people. You know, God swallowed whole groups of people. You know, I mean, God was really mean in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, it's Jesus. He's sweet and loving. Let me tell you, that's a horrible misconception of what the Old Testament really teaches. Now, let's do this. If you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. And if you've been around church very, very long, you will recognize that Isaiah 53 is what's referred to as a messianic passage, meaning that it speaks prophetically 600 years before Jesus was born. Isaiah wrote the most precise and perfect description of what the crucifixion would be. And he did that in what we call Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53 is where it says things like, Verse 3, he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Verse 4, surely he, uh, our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed or bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace fell upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. How many have heard these verses before? Right? You've heard these before. Verse 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all upon him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. As for his generation, uh, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was buried, uh, or, or yet he was with a rich man in his death. That was the tomb he was buried in, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he would see his offspring, he will prolong his days. All of these verses in Isaiah 53 are messianic verses. This is Isaiah the prophet prophesying that 600 years from then, Jesus was going to come into the earth and God was going to make him the offering for sin. He describes in great detail how he was going to be beaten and how he was going to be whipped and how his back would be torn and how he would be nailed to a cross, how he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. All of this is described in great detail. And then the summation is that we all like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid the sins of us all upon Him. Now that's Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is, is, it contains all the truths that we must believe in order for us to receive the forgiveness of our sins, the washing of our sins. But see, most Christians stop reading at the end of Isaiah 53. But if you keep on reading into Isaiah 54, listen to these words. Verse 7, for a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. 
In an outburst of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting loving kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Now listen to these next words. For this is like the days of Noah to me. When I swore that the waters of Noah would never flood the earth again, so I have sworn to you, I will never be angry with you. And my covenant of peace will never be shaken. Now, folks, listen. This is amazing. This is incredible. This is the good news of the good news. Because this is what God is clearly saying. If you will believe the offering I'm going to make of my son that's described in chapter 53. If you will believe that, then you are going to get the benefit of the promise that I'm making you in chapter 54. Now listen to the promise that God is making in chapter 54. And this is the way he describes it so that there's no, uh, no chance of misunderstanding. This is what he says. And anybody that's had any connection with church in any way at all understands the analogy that God draws. And this is what he says. If you will believe, Isaiah 53 that your iniquities have been put upon the, on the cross, on the Messiah, and He died to take care of that, then this is what I tell you. This is like the days of Noah to me. Now, this may sound kind of weird and strange, but it's going to be real simple here in just a minute. God says, now listen, folks, this is like the days of Noah. When I said to Noah, I will never flood the earth again. Now, do you remember the story of Noah? The Bible says that God looked upon the face of the earth and saw that the desires of men's hearts were desperately wicked. So, he took Noah and Noah's family, and you know the story, um, and if you watch the movies, you saw it portrayed by, by uh, the office guy a couple years ago in the movie. Um, um, yeah, yeah, Steve Carell, Evan Almighty. Uh, okay, so, good, good biblical movie uh, uh, <laughs> so God says Noah I want you to gather your family together get in the yard I'm going to flood the earth I'm going to wash the earth clean and then you're going to start over a new generation now I mean I, you, I, you know you, you, how, how, how in the world that happened what Noah must have thought all that kind of stuff is, 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 is truly bizarre I believe it all and it's very weird and bizarre but God floods the whole earth then after the flood was over, God says to Noah and his family, he says, now I'm going to make you an everlasting promise. And the everlasting promise that I'm going to make you is that I will never flood the earth like this again. I will never do this again. Never. I will never do this again. Now God didn't stop there, but the Bible tells us that God did something else to give them a regular sign so that they would be regularly reminded that He is going to keep His promise to never flood the earth again. Now, what was that sign? The rainbow. Now, I know that sounds cute and sweet and, you know, especially ladies love that. The rainbow. Let me tell you, this was not done to be cute and sweet. This was done to deal with the fear that was going to come up in Adam and his kids every time it started to rain again. Can you only imagine, after having lived through this unbelievable desolation over everything they knew as the world... And then a few weeks later, it starts to rain again. What would you think? We better start building another boat. I mean, we're in deep trouble here. 
See, because every time the rain started again, the most natural response of those people was to get scared. This is going to happen again, and we're not ready. So God says, look, Noah, I know that from now on, there's going to be a temptation for fear to rise up in your heart every time it rains. So I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to give you a clear illustration so that you will never be afraid again. I'm going to put a rainbow, I'm going to create a a chemical reaction, a a physics process whereby the rain is going to cause with sunlight this, this rainbow. And when you see that, you're going to be reminded that I have made you an unbreakable promise. So it starts to rain, Noah goes, oh my God, oh my God, you keep your word. Now listen to what God says. If you believe the sacrifice that's described in Isaiah 53, then God says, this is like the days of Noah to me when I promised him I would never flood the earth again. I now promise you. I will never be angry with you again. And he gave us a sign. Paul said, it was the cross. Why? Because after you give your life to Jesus, the next time you screw up, what's going to be the tormenting fear? That God is angry. If he's mad, he's rejecting me. If he's mad, he doesn't want me close to him. If he's mad, how can I draw near to him? If I can't draw near to him, how can I get this fixed? How can I be changed? I can't. Now, if I were to come here tonight and say to you, you know, when I was on the plane flying into Alaska a few days ago, the Lord spoke to me. God (laughs) spoke to me. And this is what God said. That the inhabitants of the earth have become so wicked, so evil, so sinful, that God has decided... He is going to flood the earth again. If I came here and told you that God spoke that to me, what would you say to me? You're a false prophet. That's exactly right. You're full of duty. You, 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 you're, you, that, I mean, you would, you would reject that out of hand. You, you would totally reject that. Why? Because God made an eternal promise. God made a promise. That's why you would reject that. Well, I'm here to tell you that God is using that in His Word as an example to convince us that we must not listen to anybody or any voice that says when we fall short of perfection in Christ that God is now angry. That, my friend, is a lie. And the beauty of living in the reality of that is, and I know you, you, you hear Gabriel say this, and sometimes you may get tired of how frequently he says, you are the righteousness of God in Christ. You may get a little tired of that sometimes, because I know he says that a lot. Well, he's just quoting the Apostle Paul, who said it over and over and over again in all of his writings. But for us to come to understand that, we have to deal with this issue of God's anger. God says, just like I promised Noah that I would never, ever again flood the earth and and destroy flesh because of their sin, and I gave him the sign of a rainbow, I am now promising you that if you'll believe the sacrifice of my son on the cross, I will never be angry with you you again and when you mess up and the liar comes to you and begins to make you fearful that I am somehow upset at you I am giving you a sign to always look to the cross of Jesus Christ now what difference does that make oh let me tell you what the difference that makes is when I fall short of the glory of God when I fall short of Christ's image There is nothing that keeps me from moving directly toward God for washing and cleansing and a working in my heart because I am absolutely convinced that God is not lying. He is telling the truth. He made an eternal promise to us. Now, I realize 
that, that there's a temptation for us to think, well, you know, if you tell people that if they'll believe in Jesus, if they'll receive Him, that, that God won't ever be mad at them. Again, if you tell people that, aren't people just going to think they can just sin, do anything they want, and get by with it? Well, sure, there's going to be some people that think that, but let me give you a little clue about people that think that way. They're going to think that way no matter what you tell them. That's not the problem. The problem is, according to the Scripture, the biggest problem that believers have is that when we fall short, we buy into the lie that God is mad at us, which means that we cannot go to Him. If we cannot go to Him, we cannot get fixed. Now, the Bible deals with this by referring to our conscience referring to the internal barometer that God has built within all mankind that, that gives us a, a, a sense of what's right and wrong. And what we have to be involved in is God washing our conscience because our conscience will end up lying to us. The way we have to deal with this is by understanding what the Scripture says. Now, let me give you an example of, of, of what the Scripture says. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. See, for us... You know, when we, we, you know we, we, we read that verse in 2 Corinthians 5. This is one of the many, many places where Paul says, we are the righteousness of God in Christ. And then we say, well, what does that mean? Well, one of the easiest ways to understand the word righteousness is to understand that in its simplest form it means rightness or having been made right. We have been made right with God, which simply means there is nothing between us and God that would in any way hinder our experiencing Him and His love for us. We have been made right with God. That's what it means when Paul says, we are the righteousness of God in Christ. In Christ, there is nothing between us and God. So we can be full recipients. Now, the lie of the enemy is that unless you're walking in some kind of perfect obedience, then you, 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 you can't do that. But that's what the gospel is really all about. Now, as long as I believe that somehow God is offended by my lack of perfect Christ-likeness, as long as I believe that, then it's going to be impossible for me to draw near to Him for the work of His Spirit in my life. So here's another thing that the Bible labors to try to convince us of, and that is that not only was our sin nailed to the cross, not only was God's anger nailed to the cross, which the clear biblical conclusion is God cannot be angry at us. That's not how God deals with us. God does not deal with us as His children out of anger. But another aspect of this is to understand the word shame. And how we feel ashamed when we fail or when we fall short. But here's what the Bible says about shame and how God feels about us. Look in chapter 2 of Hebrews, beginning in verse 10. For it was fitting for him, capital H, that's Jesus. It was fitting for him from whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. And then we come to this verse. For both he who sanctifies and those who are... Literal Greek here, which if you have a New American Standard in the margin, it actually gives you the literal Greek... It says, for, those, for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them his brethren. Now, I want you to think about that passage of, of, of Scripture. Listen to these words now. Both he who does the sanctifying and those who are being sanctified sanctified are from the same Father. 
Now let's talk about who that is. Number one, who is it that does the sanctifying? It's Jesus. The Spirit of Christ, Spirit of God, working in human beings, does the sanctifying. Now the word sanctifying in its simplest form means to cleanse. Take a plate, it's dirty, you clean it, it's been sanctified. So the simplest explanation of the word sanctify means to take it and clean it. All right? So he who does the cleansing is him. Then in this verse we have those who are being cleansed. Who's that? Us. And then Paul, who I believe wrote the book of Hebrews, says... Both he who does the sanctifying and those who are in the process of being sanctified, they are both from one Father. Therefore, he is not ashamed of them. Now think about this. If you are being sanctified, that means that you are not fully sanctified yet. Which means... There's still some real dirt in your life. In fact, let me illustrate that. Let's get a microphone, and we'll just start right over here, and each one can just stand up and share a little dirt in their dirt. Man, your eyes got so big. Man, I mean, they just, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> that's horrible. Did you hear that? Oh, that's horrible. Yeah, okay, all right. You're ready to confess it right now, right? I am unclean. I am unclean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But now listen, listen to what Paul says as he lays this out. Because Paul knew full well what condemnation does to us. Paul understood full well what shame does to us. He understood full well what fear does to us. It keeps us from interacting with God for this ongoing work of cleansing and sanctifying and work of holiness in our lives. What keeps us from that is our fear, our shame, our worry that God is angry at us. So the Bible labors to let us know that through the, the, the act of Jesus on the cross, all of that has been done away with. So, so the writer says, all right, so here's the way it works. We have he who does the sanctifying. And then we have us who are in the process of being sanctified. Now, if you're in the process of being sanctified, that means there's still a lot of gunk in your life. By the way, gunk is a Hebrew word. You may not recognize it. <laughs> But that's a Hebrew word, and it means, you know, ickiness, all right? Sin, falling short. You know, I have, uh, uh, Linda and I have three children, um, and uh, we've raised six foster kids, too, so we've always had lots of kids in our house growing up. And in fact, Linda and I used to really like children <laughs> until we had a whole bunch of them. And, but anyway, no, that's not true. I, we, we love kids. But, uh, but, but, uh, but our youngest daughter, Amanda, who's just now 25, our other kids are, are well, we have one that's 40, but uh, uh, our other kids are quite a bit older, and then Amanda came along uh, kind of late in our life, and a lot of people say, oh, you had a little surprise. Really, she was the only one we planned. The other kids we just had when we were young and stupid and didn't quite know how they popped out, but there they were, but we actually wanted to have another one when Amanda came along, but... But Amanda was, uh, was 12 years old when we gave up our home and everything we owned and, and started traveling around the world and living every day uh, of the year on the road in motels or thatch huts, wherever we were, and did that for nine years. So Amanda, at 12 years old, she grew up uh, from 12 to 21. That's the way she grew up, was not having a home, not having a... Uh, uh, she had two suitcases. That's all you can get on a plane, and so that's all the three of us were allowed to have was two suitcases. So whatever we owned, we had to get in two suitcases. Other than that, we couldn't own anything. Because that's the way we were living. But Amanda grew up in meetings like this every day, every day, every day, every day. And, and didn't kill herself, which is really great. Uh, it's amazing. But, uh, but, but, but Amanda would hear this kind of teaching over and over and over again. And she would get the biggest kick out of me talking about how we fall short. And sometimes I get really excited about this because I believe this so passionately. And, uh, and it comes out when I'm sharing with people. And so one time I was just really getting worked up and people were getting excited and they were getting this truth and it was setting them free. And I was saying, you know, this, the, the, the problem is we fall short of the glory of God. I mean, that's the dilemma. We fall short of the glory of God. And what God wants to do is he wants to set us free from these falling shorts. And, uh, and Amanda burst out laughing. I mean, that was tame compared to what she did. I mean, she just, yeah, just I mean, she, 
Oh, man. <clears throat> so she's never let me forget that. And then she writes and tells people on Facebook about dad's falling shorts. Now, and that's a, that's a horrible image. Get that out of your mind. Be cleansed right now. Just be washed right out of your mind right now. But see, listen, listen, let me tell you something. You know, I'm, I'll be 60 here in just a few, few weeks, but, but, but at my age or at your age, it doesn't make any difference. The lie and the work of the, the enemy is that when you fall short of God's expectation in your life, he wants to put upon you shame and guilt and fear and convince you that God doesn't want you near him until you fix this, until you straighten up. And the absolute opposite is the truth. So here we are. We are in the process of being sanctified, which means that there's areas of our life that are clearly not sanctified but the end of that verse is he is not ashamed of us now how in the world can an absolutely perfect God not be ashamed of us who are so grossly imperfect in our lives how can that possibly be and this is what the Bible teaches us because God who lives above and beyond time already sees you finished God already sees you in your future when you will be made forever exactly like His Son. God already sees you there. So He can look at you now understanding what you're struggling with, but because He already sees you fully made like Jesus in the future, He can lay aside His shame to the cross so He can interact with you right now in the midst of your failure so that there would be absolutely nothing to keep you and I from running boldly into the presence of God. So then we come back to this passage in Hebrews 4. And this passage in Hebrews 4 is, 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 is where we read, for we have a high priest who is not ashamed or who fully understands our weaknesses. This is verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus is the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we have a high priest who sympathizes, or your translation may say, understands our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near. Now, now, the Bible is all about context. It's all about understanding the context. Like any literature, it's about understanding the context. Here's the context. You have a high priest who understands your failures. You have a high priest who understands your weaknesses. You have a high priest who understands where you fall short. You have a high priest who understands the frailty and the weakness of your humanity. You have a high priest who understands that dilemma. And then it says, therefore... Because we do have a high priest who understands our weaknesses. Because of that, let us draw near with confidence or boldly to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace, now listen, to help in time of need. Now, interpreting any literature will demand that you ask yourself the question, what is the time of need the writer is talking about? And the context makes it crystal clear. Now listen to this. You have a high priest who understands your weakness. So in your time of need, run to the throne of grace. In that context, what is the time of need? When your weakness shows up. That's the time of need he's talking about. When your flesh flops out for everybody to see. Run to the throne of grace. For the transforming power of God. When you fall short. Now think how this goes against human nature. When do we boldly come to anybody or anything? When we screwed up big time or when we did really good? I mean, come on. If you're in public school, when do you strut by the principal's office? When you just failed the semester exam or when you just aced it come on you're hiding out in the bathroom when you pulled an F come on give me you know it's, 
You, 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 play, you, you, you play on the sports team. When do you strut by the coach's office? When you just drove in the winning run or you went 0 for 4? You don't strut by the coach's office when you whiffed four times in the game. You hide. See, human nature is, I come boldly when I've done good. God says, no, 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 come to me boldly when you need it the most. Come to me boldly at your lowest point. Come to me boldly when your weakness shows up. That's when I want, why? Because the well don't need the physician. When I'm doing good, I don't need that. What I need is when I'm not doing good. That's when I need to come boldly before Him. And this is what this message through, through, through Isaiah is all about. To try to say to people whom God loves so desperately. I have set aside my anger. I have set aside shame. I have set aside embarrassment. I am not ashamed of you because I live above and beyond time. Above and beyond time. I look down upon time. I've already seen you made complete in Christ. I've already seen your eternal future. I've already seen where you're going to end up. So I've chosen not to be ashamed of you now, which means you can come. And I'm telling you right now, the best message you can share with anybody is that God put all of his anger on the cross. And you, if you'll receive that, you can live free from any fear of God's anger ever again. God put all shame upon Jesus. The Bible literally teaches, and we can't portray this in passion plays and Easter celebrations and all that, because it would be X-rated. The Bible clearly tells us that Jesus was hung naked on the cross. And there's a specific reason that he was. He was hung in full shame before the whole world. You know why? So that all of your shame, all of your embarrassment over your failure would be put on him. So when he died, all of the shame that you and I would be tempted to believe when we mess up would die with Jesus so that we could come to God without ever being ashamed. We can take the blame for our failure without ever feeling any of the shame. And that's the only way that you and I will develop a lifestyle where we constantly interact with God. I want to pray for you right now. And this is what I want to pray. Just according to the scripture, Paul said, there is therefore now to be no condemnation to any who are in Christ Jesus. It makes no difference whatsoever what your immediate struggle is. The real problem is the fear and shame that rises up in you that God may somehow be mad at you. How many many have ever said, I really screwed up and what makes me mad is I knew better, but I did it anyway. Look, listen, you know what, you, you, you'll help yourself tremendously if you will learn right here and now, right here and now, get this grounded in your mind. Knowing to do the right thing and having the power to do it is not the same thing. Just because you know what the right thing to do is does not at all mean you have the power or the ability to do it. But the lie of the enemy is, well, you knew that was wrong, but you did it anyway. What's wrong with you? But we have a high priest who looks at us and says, I understand. You know, the dirt you, wasn't want, you weren't wanting to share with anybody? You have a high priest who understands. And if you'll come to him with that, with no shame, with no fear, then he will do the cleansing, sanctifying work. He'll do it the rest of your life. And then when you stand before him, John says this. We do not understand yet what we shall be, but this we know. When we see him, we shall be like him. We will be made forever like Jesus. That's our eternal end. Here's what I want to pray for you very specifically. And as we wrap this up, we want to spend some time approaching God together. But very specifically, we want to approach Him for a washing of our minds and emotions from shame and fear. Because it's all based on a lie. It's all based on a lie. Whatever rises up in you and says, you know, you ought to be ashamed of yourself because you knew better, that is a lie. You need to confess it and take the blame, but not be beat up by shame. Father, in Jesus' name, as we said here before you, we confess to you that there is much in our lives that is far from the image of Jesus. We confess to you, Lord, that we have again and again given in to this feeling 
that surely you must be disappointed in us. Surely you must be ashamed of my behavior. Surely you, you, you must be upset when I choose wrong instead of right. You, you, you must be angry. You mu- but Father, based on your word, I confess that is a sin. I am judging you as a liar because you say that if I receive the sacrifice of your son, just like you promised Noah you would never flood the earth again, you promise me you will never be angry with me again. Father, I have judged you as a liar because I have judged you by my misleading feelings. But I come to your word now and I say, I agree with your word. I agree with what your word says, that you nailed your anger to the cross, that you nailed your disappointment to the cross, and that you draw me to you for a washing and a cleansing of my mind and my emotions. As you said here, just waiting in the presence of God, the promise of the Scripture is that the Holy Spirit will wash your conscience. He will wash you from a sense of shame. He will wash you from the embarrassment of your failure. He will wash you from the lie that he surely must be angry. These are all lies. And you and I have to make a choice right now whether we're going to judge God as a truth teller or we're going to judge God as a liar based on our feelings or based on his word. Father, right now as we said here, let the power of your spirit wash over these minds right now. Right now, every shred of shame is a lie. So by your Spirit, would you wash our minds right now? Every sense that you must somehow be angry because we have not lived up to your standards. This is a lie. According to your Word, the feelings that we have are lies to us. So we choose to believe what you say about yourself and about us. Will you let the Spirit of God wash you right now while you sit here? Let Him wash your mind. Right now, interact with God. Engage fully with the Holy Spirit. And let Him wash you right now. Let Him wash you. Because this is the key to being able to consistently enter in and enjoy the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit. Let freedom come into your hearts, into your minds, into your emotions so that you do not hesitate to draw near to God for a washing and a cleansing. All right, now look at me for a minute. Look up here just for a minute. Come on up here, Gabriel. How many are going to say along with me that I'm going to choose to believe what God says about himself and not what I sometimes think about him? You're going to choose to believe what God says about himself? I'm choosing to believe that what God says about himself is way more accurate than what I sometimes feel. Are you choosing that? It'll change our lives and it will remove every barrier that keeps us from quickly, regularly entering in and interacting with the Spirit of God, which will continue to sanctify us. Not to mention the fact that you'll be able to live the rest of your life in unwavering and unshakable joy and absolute peace in Jesus. Thank you very much.